You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everyone. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. And we need a lot of solidarity at the moment. The explosion in Lebanon that took out their entire port is something that just underlines the extent of the fragility of the systems in place maintaining the economy of the modern world. A stockpile of chemicals left by a ship years before, posing so much danger that despite leaving it for the Lebanese to deal with, there were no answers for what became a bomb. COVID is lurking here in Melbourne, where we are all in a hard lockdown. For Channel 7, who nightly turns up the heat on fear and worry and attacks on the Victorian government, blaming it for their spread because of the bungled quarantine hotel debacle, which lies at the feet of an unscrupulous private security business that preys on insecure workers outsourcing the tasks to untrained and badly paid workers. Another example of the capitalist system racing to the bottom and leaving people to clean up the mess and soak up the pain. Amnesty Redfern Action Group held a fantastic online forum on Wednesday called Australia's Shame, which should indicate the subject matter. The push to increase the age at which a child can be incarcerated to 14 years gives you some idea of the horror that Indigenous people are living in since the majority of people caught up in this travesty of justice that requires a campaign to raise the age of incarceration is, of course, First Nations people. The forum brought together amazing people, chaired by Larissa Berhurst and included Eddie Kubilo, Larakia Wajingan and Central Arentaman, Uncle Rodney Dillon, Palawa Elder, Glenis Grieve, Jingila Mudbura woman from Catherine, Ned Jampinjinpa Hargraves, Walpira Elder, and Tony McAvoy, Weary Man, Barrister, Alan Palmer, Arenta Katuhi Alawahi, and Anmatiri Man, and Thelia. Anthony, Professor, Facility of Law at UTS, and the Honourable Alastair Nicholson, former Chief Justice of the Family Court of Australia. And today I wanted to give you a taste with a powerful speech from Tony McAvoy and an update from Telia 
Anthony on the outcome of the investigations into the horrors at Donvale Youth Detention Centre in the Northern Territory. We follow up with a word from a Melbourne man of Sudanese descent that shows that racism is a scourge in Australian landscape which needs to be put to bed. Kevin will give a view on the week and we then go to regular Don Sutherland. Don is a campaigner and former Chief Industrial Officer of the AMWU. I've been following the several plans coming from a variety of areas of the political landscape about the future of work after COVID and the possible role of manufacturing despite the ongoing snouts in trough mantra of free trade economics that the federal government and the broader business community are love childs of. I really wanted to know how the interests of working Australians could actually have a place at the table. And the consummate campaigner Don Sutherland actually had something to think about to raise hope. But that's for the last half hour. First, an important message from the station. There's plenty of specialist music programs to choose from on the 3CR grid. Explore the 3CR schedule online at 3cr.org.au. Yes, this is our vibration. Check out Music Sans Frontier. Great voices. Music matters. The hip sister hop show. The heavy session. The Planet X radio show. Satellite skies. Shindig. Sweet dreams. Tune in to 3CR 855 AM on your digital radio or streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Let our music make you happy. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. I was blown away by the Amnesty Ref and Action Group's online forum, Australia's Shame. The following pieces from the forum have a few sound quality issues, but the content is just riveting. First up, Tony McElvey. I'm now going to introduce uh, Tony McAvoy, SC, and I, I always find it hard to know where to start with Tony because he's so accomplished and, and such a trailblazer and um, uh, particularly for people like myself who are also in the legal profession has been a, a great inspiration. And I don't want to age him. I, I made a comment to him the other night that he's mm-hmm. becoming our elder statesman. So um, uh, I think that's, that's actually uh, something that uh, you're going to have to get used to, Tony. Um, I will just share this with you, that Tony was a, a bar- became a barrister in 2000 and senior counsel in 2015. He is the first Indigenous Australian to become a silk, so really is at the elite level of the, um, of the um, law in that sense, but he's also been incredibly active to, within the profession to prompt people to work for change, um, just as he has. He's been co-chair of the Indigenous Legal Issues Committee within the Law Council of Australia. He sits on a variety of um, Indigenous-focused and criminal justice-focused um, committees within the New South Wales Bar and uh, and Law Community. He's been a commissioner on the New South Wales Land and Environment Court. He is one of the 
leading native title lawyers in the country, um, and he was appointed as co-senior counsel assisting the Royal Commission into protection and detention of children in the Northern Territory. Um, and, uh, you know, just has been a, a tireless advocate for change um, on, on many levels. So somebody who's worked within the system to change the system. So, um, Tony, it's great to have you with us tonight. There's so many things that we could get you to speak about in relation to the topic. Um, but I guess one of the things that we might get you to start with um, is the Royal Commission into protect the protection and detention of children in the Northern Territory. I wondered if you could speak to us about um, that process and obviously people get frustrated that there's not more that comes out of those processes but um, you don't get involved in them lightly and I wondered if you could share your views on on why though on you know what we should be looking at in terms of that Royal Commission. Uh, thank you Marissa I have been um, blessed I think to hear the previous speakers uh, the quality of the discussion and the level of insight from many parts of the country um, truly is a blessing for all of us who um, joined in tonight. I feel like one of the participants really, but, um, but before I answer the question, I, I do want to acknowledge all of the um, First Nations people uh, on this uh, webinar. I want to acknowledge all the supporters um, who are incredibly important and valuable to this whole process, our, our brothers and sisters in arms. I'm here on um, Glamaragal country, Sydney, um, probably soon to go into some sort of lockdown. <laughs> um, uh, the time that I spent on the uh, Northern Territory Dondal Royal Commission was 12 months, but it was, uh, it was, it felt like it was years. Um, the, the work was so intense and um, so uh, personally and emotionally draining. I don't want to comment uh, any more on, on the internals of the Royal Commission and I agree with uh, uh, my brother Eddie Cabillo's uh, insights and observations that he made earlier. Um, he's a, I, what I want to say though is that What we saw in the Northern Territory during the course of that Royal Commission was a deeply, deeply entrenched level of racism that permeated through all levels of government and the media. The, the Northern Territory economy re relies on First Nations people being sick, being incarcerated and, and communities being dysfunctional. Um, I, I got the impression very strongly that, that the bureaucracy did not want to see those problems, that heartache and pain in those communities remedied because that would mean that they were without that income and revenue and those jobs. They live off our illness. One third of their Northern Territory revenue comes from the federal government. And so we had the, the, the possibility of analysing the youth detention and child protection systems over a period of, of 12 months and, and did get the opportunity to expose some of that racism. But in that short period, 
I don't think we could uh, have gotten to and, and we didn't get to the heart of or, or deconstruct those systems that have been decades and generations in the making. What we saw in the Royal Commission is the result of, of a treatment of Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory for a long period of time that regarded Aboriginal people as, as um, people who could be told what to do and people who could be locked up and people who could be deprived of their rights. Um, so, um, even if we could uh, expose and deconstruct all of those things in the Royal Commission, the, the system that is built up around that level of systemic and deeply institutionalised racism has its own inbuilt defence mechanisms to outside criticism, such as that that we might make from a, a Royal Commission. One of the common retorts that I heard in the Northern Territory um, directed at myself and other lawyers who had come from different parts of Australia to try and bring some objectivity to what was happening in the Northern Territory was that Southerners didn't know the reality of the Northern Territory. Or, just as common, this is how we do things in the NT to justify discriminatory behaviour and treatment. And so it is that the, the bureaucracy and the wheels of government and the economic systems all rely upon the oppression of Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory for their existence. And, it's, and it is very difficult to, to break that down and to change it. But we must. We must, for all of our brothers and sisters in the Northern Territory, we must continue to challenge it and seek to break it down. The, re the reality, um, though, uh, is that many people outside of the Northern Territory uh, like to think of the, the racism there as unacceptable. that same systemic racism and institutionalised racism exists throughout the rest of the country. It is simply writ large in the Northern Territory because First Nations people make up a third of the population and it's, it, it, it comes out on the big screen, so to speak, so it's impossible to miss. but. In the southern states where Aboriginal people make up 3% of the population, it's just not in, in the, the, everybody's face every day. So uh, people from the other states have no reason to be smug or look down upon Northern Territorians, in my view. And the, the one um, recent confirmation of that um, view is is the report that was released by uh, Mr. Shirodka, uh, 
from the ANU on implicit and unconscious bias. And that report uh, released in June, I believe, um, found after 11,000 tests were undertaken, so a very good um, sample, that three out of four Australian people have a an implicit or unconscious negative bias against first Australians. And that, that report received coverage for a day in the media and then slipped out of out of uh, everybody's consciousness. But for people like me who work in the justice system and see it played out every day, um, that figure stuck with me. I've got to say, Larissa. Um, yep. So that um, figure, uh, I, I w- would add, is, is something that one sees very strongly played out in the Northern Territory. Yes, yes. Got some good examples tonight. On that point about that report, um, how should um, those findings be understood more broadly in the justice sector? Well, as soon as I heard that report, I figured, I, I, I thought, should those figures be applied to the justice sector? Is there any reason why not? why we should not accept that three out of four people involved in the justice sector uh, have a negative implicit or unconscious bias against Aboriginal people. And I couldn't see any reason why not. Three out of four judges in the, in the, in the justice system will have that negative bias. Um, if, if that's the case, how do we guarantee that First Nations people ever get a fair a fair trial. You see, if you dig down a little, you might think that unconscious or implicit implicit uh, bias is likely to affect things such as the weight that a judge will give to the evidence of a of a white person as opposed to con- contradictory evidence from a, a First Nations person, or whether the the, the judge accepts the evidence of the of an offender that um, that he or she feels remorse about their activity and and they should be given uh, leniency on the basis of that remorse or whether they're likely to reoffend and whether they're suitable to to be granted bail um, or or in relation to the circumstances around the offense it this, this unconscious and implicit bias at, at that really um, high level of three out of four people, um, I think, on its face, would appear to have a very dramatic effect on the administration of justice. It's likely to affect, for instance, the assessments of witnesses made by juries. How do you get a fair jury trial when three out of four of the witnesses have, have a negative bias against your client? It's likely to affect decisions made by police officers in regards to whether 
charges should be laid. And I've heard it many times, as other lawyers on this panel will have, that the times when police are called to an event and the, the black fella, the First Nations person, gets arrested because um, the white fella says they started it and the police disregard the, the, the view of the, the Aboriginal person. They, it's likely to affect um, whether somebody is warned and sent home. And so we see from a report that came out of Western Australia earlier this year um, in relation to, a, a, it's a minor thing, but it was in relation to a police uh, issuing fines for traffic offences, for speeding. And it was found in this report that where the uh, speeding was as a result of a police of a of a camera, so that there was no human intervention. Aboriginal people uh, in Western Australia had a lower rate of fine than the rest of the community. But where that uh, speeding ticket was issued by an officer, they were three point nine times more likely to be given a ticket. And that figure, that figure, it seems to me, reverberates through the whole of the justice system. And and so how, how can we expect that police will exercise all of their various discretions um, in a manner that is, that is unbiased against uh, First Nations people? How do we know that they're not going to make a decision to search somebody's car or bag because of bias, or whether they should conduct a strip search or a body cavity search. And we heard the Attorney General in Western Australia just uh, a few weeks ago talking about a mother who, who presented herself at a police station and was sub uh, because she was in, in hospital at the time when she should have been a witness in a domestic violence matter and, and the, the prosecutor asked for a, a warrant to be issued against her. When she turned up the police station, they arrested her and then they cavity searched her and they held her overnight. And the Attorney General in Western Australia said this would not have happened to a white mother from Cottesloe. But it happened in Western Australia to an Aboriginal woman. And, and that's consistent with a, with a bias against Aboriginal people. So... It's likely, it seems to me, that, that those biases also affect the decisions of corrections officers and parole officers and child welfare officers. So the question I, I ask myself, because I sit on all of these committees internally in the, in the justice system trying to figure out how to make the system fairer for my people. And I ask myself, what, what must the justice sector do about it? Does it engage in a process of self-awareness and, and find the mechanism to deliver some structural and cultural change to ensure that the biases are unknown? How, would they actually know how much the, the, these biases are affecting the, the delivery of justice? And then they do things to remediate and ameliorate those biases. 
Well, does it say, like um, we heard the Minister for Police in New South Wales say a few weeks ago about the officer that that face slammed, body slammed the, the young man into the into the um, the pavement and put him in the hospital, uh, that, oh, well, the officer would think that he had a bad day in the, in the office. So the question for the justice sector, it seems to me, is does it ignore it? Does it ignore this latest report and hope that we will go away? Or does it grasp the nettle and and confront and look at itself in the mirror as it's doing in respect of sexual harassment at this very point in time with as a result of the um, the, the report in the High Court about the um, activities of, of justice of former justice Dyson Hayden so um, they're my observations about that report and I think that we need to hold on to that report and we need to, to put it in people's faces, in the justice sector's faces and say, you need to confront this. You need to think about what this means for the way in which you deliver justice. And you need to make some changes. And, and I, I've got to say this, and it's, it's my own observation that at its very heart, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Death in Custody report 1991 was pleading for cultural change in the systems that uh, affect Aboriginal people in the justice sector. It, it, it had uh, Aboriginal justice uh, advisory committees established that talked about cultural awareness training and that report failed to bring about the change that we need. And, and that was not for want of trying. There were so many people involved, yet the, the systems were so entrenched that we that we couldn't shift them. And, and here we are again, 30 years later, saying, you've got to do it this time. You've got to make the change. That, well, that's my view on it anyway, Larissa. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Before we leave the Amnesty Redfern Action Group event, here's a word from Professor Talia Anthony, who gives us an update on what actually came out of the Royal Commission into the brutality employed at youth in detention in the Northern Territory. So, um, since the Royal Commission, um, it's now been four years since Four Corners aired the shocking footage um, of you know, Dylan Bowler in the first instance being strapped to a restraint chair and, and hooded. And there was a national outcry and many recommendations flowed from this Royal Commission. What we've seen now, um, almost three years since the Commission concluded, is a real departure and I would say backlash on the part of the Northern Territory Government rather than respond in a way that gives attention to the need for self-determination, that tries to redress racism, it's gone ahead with its punitive policies. Um, so one of the things I found really interesting last year, which really went under the radar, in 2019, there were a suite of amendments passed for the Youth Justice Act, and they gave greater powers to the superintendent and authorised officers 
to restrain children, to strip search children, to segregate children, um, and to use force. Prior to the amendments, it had to be an emergency situation. After these amendments, there's much greater scope for officers to do this. And this totally flies in the face of any recommendation of the Royal Commission. Um, we've also seen the use of tear gas about a year or so ago um, that, um, again, was um, contrary to the Royal Commission's recommendation. We've seen um, young girls being strip searched, surveillance in showers. So all the things that were supposed to be addressed um, have been not only a failure, but I would say a betrayal to those people who came to the Royal Commission to share their stories. Um, and so it's been up to the young people to take their case recently to the High Court um, to try and bring claims against the tear gassing and have been successful. But this has been, as Larissa said, such a long struggle and such hard work in trying to push for justice um, and, and their claims are still ongoing. Um, so today about two-thirds of the recommendations of the Royal Commission still have not been implemented. Um, Don Dale is still open and operating and um, there have been ongoing issues with um, not raising the age. But I might just have a few thoughts to, um, to continue on with why I think this is the case and, and touch on, I think, what many of the amazing speakers tonight have said, which is that in the Northern Territory, we've got a real deep-seated racism. Um, and this is traced to the historical policies of Aboriginal protectionism, it's traced to the practices of slavery, assimilation, massacres in the Northern Territory, um, types of things that Jumper Jumper spoke about tonight, but are also manifest today. These aren't historical things. When we look at the intervention, um, it also disempowers, it denies self-determination um, over the communities, over, over Aboriginal people's lives and cultures. Um, and what we heard in the Royal Commission, and this includes from um, Aboriginal people like um, Pat Anderson, Muriel Bamblett, also um, Larissa, talk about how when you have racism through a policy like the intervention, it plays out in detention centres. It plays out in how the police treat young people. Um, and the only response, and Harry Nelson from... You and Demu spoke about this as well. The only response is to shift the power back to the communities. Um, and he spoke about a lot of the really good work the youth programs were doing in You and Demu, but they weren't getting the support that they needed to help their children. All the resources were going to, to government and the police. Um, there were also calls, I think, as part of the campaigning around the Royal Commission that children should be on country, not in custody, um, and that there should be kids kept in family and culture, not taken by child protection, and that there needed to be people held to account for the abuses. But we haven't seen this, and we haven't seen a shift in the policy away from the intervention. 
And so this year, when there's been so much focus on Black Lives Matter, it is about um, people who are harmed by police. It is about all those kids who came before the intervention and said things like um, the fact that there were guards who pushed on them and they were screaming, I can't breathe. They said things like they were being forcibly strip searched young women by male guards. But it's more than what happens in the criminal justice system. In some ways, this is the tip of the iceberg. It's what happens in the community every day, that racism that means that children are taken away and can't be brought up by their families and by their cultures. And I think, um, and you know, Tony gave a really, um, I think, compelling explanation of how unconscious and implicit racism, when it operates on that level, no section of society is immune. But I think the real tragedy of the situation in the Northern Territory is that many of these kids are taken away and they can't be brought up in language, in culture, to know their skin groups and to pass this on to the next generation. Um, and I think that we need to we need to remember that you know the Northern Territory shows how racism is not only unconscious; it's also very explicit. The Racial Discrimination Act was um, suspended to allow the intervention. In this country today, we continue to have this intervention and it simply has to stop if we're going to stop what happens in detention, but also what, what happens in communities and in families. Um, and so, unfortunately, um, the Royal Commission, while I think it did bring together many um, people to tell their stories, um, it didn't have the necessary impact to really make a change, not yet. And so we need to keep telling these stories before we see change. This is Stephen Pigram from Up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. We are all about politics with your Wheaties on a Saturday and by podcast. We've been talking about racism and the heavy burden the Indigenous brothers and sisters have to bear in this country, but now we have to look at the experience of a Sudanese descent member of our community who had this to say at a recent event put on by the Victorian Socialists. Thank you so much uh, for inviting me to speak here with you guys. Um, I acknowledge the traditional lands of the original landowners, the Aboriginals. Um, yeah, thank you so much again, once again, um, for inviting me uh, to speak about these issues. Um, introduce, in order to introduce myself, so basically, you already know John. Um, I'm a community advocate. I've worked with uh, numerous community leaders, um, in particular, the South Sudanese community leader. I work alongside him for the last couple of years. Um, we helped develop an organization called Mother Australia that that helps people, especially the disengaged youth, um, and we help them with their, with their well-being in terms of employment, 
um, and incarceration issues, legal problems, um, as well as their personal well-being, for example, drug addiction, alcohol addictions, and so on. So that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years. Um, I'm also an artist, so I make music. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a rapper. You know? uh, I like to wrap things up um, at every show that I go to. Um, I perform to a lot of places. Um, uh, one of the biggest performances was at uh, Marble Stadium with Isaiah Firebase. Um, yeah, it was incredible. There were over uh, 50,000 people that were there at that time. Uh, we sang the Australian anthem, which was which was great, you know what I mean? I felt like I, I finally belonged um, because everywhere I go, there's always a, somebody always feels as if I, I don't belong here. Like there's, there's a certain place where I should be at. So, but sometimes I ask myself, um, this is like where, where what, what are the places there? I mean, I was I was in a refugee camp and, um, and this was the best and the greatest country of all time. Um, and this is all I ever know. So in regards to the whole uh, the narrative, the African gang narrative, uh, I, I follow up with that, with that story for so long. Um, I was actually one of the first people to point it out using our Mamata Facebook page. So I've, I pointed out all the, the media stories and I just uh, I let my community know that this is an issue and we should somehow address it. So ever since there's been the the people have been very vocal in terms of addressing these issues because they could see the impact and how it can contribute to all this um, racism and so on. Um, the influence of media is, is very evidently. Um, some sometimes it's very subconsciously, so we can't really um, know exactly um, how this narrative has impact has impact people. Um, it. The, the, the funny thing is is that um, the crime statistics um, it really contradicts itself. Um, it contradicts it contradicts the whole entire narrative, narrative that was um, that was that a lot of people the mass believed. Um, for example, mm. the South Sudanese uh, or the Sudanese population, or in general the African population in Australia, is quite is quite low. Um, it's actually under thirty thousand. Um, or, or it's actually 17,000. Mm, hardly any. Uh, for example, in where I live, the people from South Sudan, there's only 400 or something like that, around 400 mm. to 500 people, uh, South Sudanese. Um, so, but the actual crime that were committed during that time, that is 2008, was actually just, it was 30, 36,000, which is shy of 40,000. Those were the um, the the crimes and the offense, offense that were committed during that time. Um, this is just in Melbourne. In other times, like the greater Geelong, there was over 200,000 people who committed an offense, as well as the greater Dandenong, there was 18,000. So in order to truly um, blame an entire um, um, a, a, a class or, or, or race, that they're the people who contribute to the majority of the crime is... is it was just, it was almost like over-exaggeration. It felt like an over-exaggeration um, because you would have to make sure that every African person commits a crime um, yeah. in order f uh, for them to be fully blamed for the majority of the climb crimes. And majority of the crimes that happened, I'm talking about the 36,000 and the 18,000 and the 19,000 from all these particular areas, 
There were also extreme crimes, um, perhaps class A crimes, like bur burglary, um, stabbing, and so on. Um, the truth is, uh, majority of the crimes, they're not, they, they, they don't get told by the media. So the media doesn't just go out there and tell us every story. Um, there's a lot of people who um, have committed a crime, and like a really harsh crime, and um, there's, there's never been a media story regarding them and uh, therefore they're very lucky you know because uh, being in the media means you're being shamed and so on so uh, I sometimes believe like this whole entire narrative was actually designed as a political uh, narrative to orchestrate or, or activate the right wing the, the people who, who stand for law and order the people who uh, have so much pride for the country that they're willing to say, go back to your country, to wherever that is a, an immigrant or wherever they don't feel uh, deserving to be here. So, uh, personally, um, I've actually experienced racism. Um, the, the, the truth about racism is that I hate to really m memorize them. You know, I usually just, I'm, I'm very forgetful of those moments where I, I receive, I, I experience racism because I, I do consider how, how that uh, really impacts my mental health and, and that could lead to anxiety and so on. But of course, I'm not going to neglect that I, the, the, the certain times where I experienced racism. Um, I, I could give a couple with a lot of examples. Like I've been called a, a nigger. Um, people have yelled. At, like when, when I, I was, was time I was just walking, I was just walking next to the road and stuff, going to the bus stop. And you know, a car just comes like, you know, and I'm just like, whoa, you know, I'm like, okay, well, what is the other about? You know what I mean? So uh, I'm not sure why they did that. Um, maybe they got a kick out of, out of doing that because the adrenaline of of just um, attacking someone makes some certain people feel good. But I, I never really considered to be a, a huge major problem. Um, I think I've gotten used to it. Um, there were certain times as well in, at Werribee, um, there was there was a bunch of four guys just sitting down. Uh, I think one of them was homeless, or two of them were homeless. So I was waiting for my, my, my bus, so I decided to go hang out with these guys. And I was like, hey, what are you guys doing, man? I just started to talk with them. Um, and then, you know, one of them was like, yeah, you're Aussie, man. I'm like, yeah, I'm Aussie, mate. Come on. I got a lot of friends and they're Aussies. And then one of them started to speak about the whole um, Africans being gangs and committing crimes and how he doesn't like that. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I actually don't like crime, crime in, in, in example, in, in just in general. I don't like crime. So, and um, uh, yeah, if you see those youngins and they do something to you, let me know and I'll, I'll speak to them. And then um, he goes on to say that, hey, he brings out his phone and it's like, hey, don't you take my phone and stuff. I think it was supposed to be a joke. Um, in his mind, but of course that that I can see the influence in the media. Uh, just that li little example that he feels that I'm going to take his phone, although we all laughed about it. <laughs> you know, we all cracked up like ah, you know, you know that's what Aussies do. We just laugh about everything sometimes. You know, makes us feel good, like you know, like the boys. But that's not that's the impact of racism is actually so uh, visible, and sometimes it's invisible because. You can't, especially systematic or institutionalized racism, is so invisible, and you can't because, like, um, like I think some, um, 
somebody mentioned it before that it comes from up there all the way to the down. You know, in, in the bureaucracy system, there's people who been allocated some sort of position of, of, of power to influence the society or, or govern the society, in, in, in fact. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of mar- marginalization that I feel as an African. And um, people like Peter Dutton, Pauline Hansen, they took advantage of the whole narrative. So, which makes me feel maybe they're, they're, they're invested in the narrative to be, um, to, um, to just to gain some political um, political points. And they purely did gain political point, just like Peter Dutton said that um, everybody's so scared of, to, go to, uh, to go to the restaurants, people are so scared to go outside, people are like this. So that really indicates that the, 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 the majority of the Australians are perhaps scared, or maybe they're just trying to fuel the, the fear so they can impose the, the law and order and so on, and, and maybe get, get a bit of attention from the from the public as well because the whole the narrative of the African gang was so prominent and every time there's a story about it people are willing to pay attention and that's one one of the things that I observed but it does it's not only limited to that there's employment discrimination there's um, we've been disenfranchised in terms of econ- economics gain or benefits and so on there's no economics um, equality um, a lot of people including myself um, feel that our resumes are usually neglected, or they're put in the bin as soon as they are, they arrive at the at the um, the auditing stage or the recruitment stage, and that really enhances the um, economic inequality that we are, are still in, still experiencing right now. And at this time, especially during the coronavirus time, it's probably the worst times. And you know, we are just normal people. We I feel I just want to pay my mortgage. I just want to pay my my bills. I want to make sure I keep up to date with my finance, um, but I'm unable to do that. In fact, it gets to a dangerous level where there's actually brilliant minds out there, young people who possess so much ideas, and in, and um, but then are unable to even execute execute anything at all based on the the disadvantage, which I, I believe I blame racism. Um, so sometimes most people like look at it as if it's the media. It's the media that's causing all of this problem. The media also is the politicians invest in these media agencies to to do the narrative. Um, because as you can see, a news reader usually read from a telegram. The telegram, so it's scripted. It's, it's a purely scripted agenda, which is quite scary because um, the impact is that. People like me and people like not only me as well. I'm sure a lot of other Australians are facing the same backlash as well. You know, but it's not difficult. It's, it's difficult to attract, to track, to track um, the racism or the impact of racism because there's not like a place where you can call. Um, so if you get rejected for housing or get given the worst place and you scream racism, the the, the, the right wing they've started this agenda where they they call out race card that. Every time you try to complain or provide feedback, um, it's almost like oh, you're using the race card. So that contradicts the meaning of racism. And um, the Sky News have, have really have done this really well. Um, if you watch, I, I watch news a lot. So if you watch them speak, uh, sometimes you can kind of tell that their main goal is to destroy multiculturalism because uh, they think the the ideology of multiculturalism 
is um, it's going to kill that conservative um, uh, mindset that they have. They want to still maintain that um, conservative view, viewpoint. Um, maybe they believe it's for their children and, and so on. Um, and this happened through budget allocation, the budgets, the government budgets. So if the money comes from the feds, let's say the money is fake, which is truly fake, okay, and the feds um, give money to, to them, you know, there's budget budget allocation. And as I can see right now, most of the budget money are going to uh, authority, and that is the policing, um, instead of uh, mental health or, or things that we actually care about, like counseling and so on. So the impact of racism is is so visible. I tend not to think about it because it's not good for my mental health to be have anxiety over something I have no control over. You know, I, I might as well just be creative and have imagination that takes me to a fantasy land and <laughs> and so on. But um, yeah, the marginalization and the systematic oppression is real. Um, it's real. And we can't we can't change it within a day. So I thank you so much, you guys, for caring about how I feel. Like it makes me feel like special, you know. Like there's somebody out there that cares. Um, and yeah, that's that's all I can say. I love. Um, like thank you. <laughs> Thanks, John. That was awesome. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for speaking out on that. I think. Um, just to echo some of the things that you said, um, yeah, like uh, the whole, um, you know, law and order agenda of the, um, you know, Daniel Andrews government, but also, you know, 2018 when all of this came to uh, the fore uh, was also an election year. So, you know, the liberal government wanted to uh, wedge Daniel Andrews on the questions of law and order and Daniel Andrews said, basically, well, not nah, actually, we're very good with questions of law and order and just, you know, expanded, uh, you know, police rights and all of these things. So he was very happy to welcome uh, in all of those, uh, you know, questions. Um, I think 100% you're so right um, on that. Um, and also, just on the question of who the real criminals are in this society, like, we have to say it's actually the people at the top, the people who make... Uh, all of their money off of exploiting working class people. Those are the real criminals uh, who are currently people like, you know, Jeff Bezos, who is becoming, you know, a trillionaire um, during COVID. Uh, you know, those are the real criminals um, in our society. And actually, those are the people uh, that we all need to fight and we all need to unite to fight against those people because we actually have more in common um, with each other um, than we do with uh, the rich anywhere um, in uh, the world. And I think that that is part of what, you know, Malcolm X was trying to say when he very eloquently and powerfully said, you can't have uh, capitalism without racism, because how else are you gonna, uh, you know, divide the majority of society to enrich yourself? Well, it's through things like racism, sexism, homophobia. Um, so those, I think, are the politics that we actually have to fight against, you know, capitalism. We need politics that are about uh, unity. We need politics that say, actually, we make everything in society. Uh, we should actually have a say of how all of this uh, is run. You know, actually, society should be run uh, for the people, not for, uh, you know, the capitalist class. Um, and I think that that's uh, really what we have to do, um, especially, um, you know, in here and now. Um, so thank you so much um, for that. Um, yeah. You know how you speak about capitalism? 
because that's the system that we've been indoctrinated in as the best form of, um, you know, of economics um, activity. So, but the, the, this is where um, I think racism is, is, is true. Racism is, is breathed from that capitalistic mindset that people are competing for money um, and people are also biased and they put a lot of um, categorical like labels to 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 um to exclude certain people you're listening to 3cr community radio 855 am visit the 3cr website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live A weak solidarity meeting was the when, as we enter lockdown to consolidate lockdown, daily contagion remaining high, who else to emerge as the great saviour providing us with the wise leadership we need, but our old mate, the true blue Aussie industry profits groups, Innes will cost the workers, who criticised the lockdown to consolidate lockdown as too restrictive, uh, too restrictive on people's movements, Innes. Too restrictive on profits. So what should we do as the pandemic rages? We must get the balance right. As caring employers, we understand fully the need to take responsible, reasonable precautions, but the government lockdown to consolidate lockdown will cost jobs, and and jobs are our raison d'etre, why we exist for the workers whom we so care about. Uh, Yes, we've noticed that. So, So what would be the perfect balance? A balance between the health of the economy and the health of our profits. The Business Profits Council is distraught that the pejorative Dan State Government has done all this without consultation, creating, quote, a complete mess for the business class without letting the business class advise it on how not to make a complete mess for the caring business class. And retailer, the ever-happy Solly on the loo, was rendered very unhappy that the government was forcing him to close his stores for which, remember, he has decided unilaterally not to pay rent to the greedy landlords, and this just a week after Solly was so ever-happy that Big Supremo scuttled them more lash son, a.k.a. Scummo and the team, had extended JobKeeper to keep paying his workers. What a heartless, heartless, pejorative Dan government. We've mentioned how we all admire the role those mantras of neoliberal economics contracting out low-paid casual work and adequate incomes and the privatisation of public services that turn over a neat little profit have worked a treat in containing COVID-19, other than being largely responsible for it spreading like, well, like the plague, and last week expressed our best wishes to the good shareholders of Estia, whose shares went up just a day after the government took over two of its aged care centres for no stronger reason than it was stuffing up big time. Well, the founder of Estia, bloke called Peter Arbonitis, real name, who now runs Heritage Care with homes in Melbourne and Sydney, turned up in Vogue True Blue Aussie magazine with a delightful, moving little story of how Pete and wife Aretti are suffering during the lockdown, along with patients across the privatised aged care sector. 
The article describes their little Turak pad they're forced to suffer in as mansion made for modern-day Greek gods, a field-sized living room, a bathroom filled with the goddess-worthy relic of a bath hewn from single-slab black stone. The building, a mere 2,000 square metre, minor Mount Olympus, where Aphrodite, who announces herself as a Reti, alights from her first-floor stratosphere to welcome all to her minor Mount Olympus. Which we hope she's not doing, because that's banned under the lockdown, which we presume applies to the Greek deity. Poor Areti and Pete stuck in their mansion with nothing to do, but think about the terrible conditions being exposed in the aged care industry. Well, the super-efficient private sector side of the industry, and full marks to Vogue for the controlled objectivity of its writing, because they were direct quotes. But unfairly, one financial journo commenting on the article said, this is a temple built with the life savings of true blue Aussies elderly. Bit unfair. Still, it shows there's a quid or several billion to be made in aged care, which is probably why the industry is calling for government support to allow them to continue providing the care they so boast about in their glossy brochures and advertisements. Top marks to one of them, Mequacare, again real name, which like all caring employers really so cares for its workers, it emailed staff last week informing them they could not catch COVID-19 at work if they wore protective equipment correctly, but could catch it in the community if they did not comply with regulations, and told them they could only self-isolate if they produced a medical certificate. Typical of evil union non-cooperation, the bloody nursing and midwifery lot dismissed the email as, listen to this, insulting to the more than 1,000 healthcare workers in Victoria who have contracted coronavirus. But McElwee then said its email was a mistake. We corrected it as soon as we realised our mistake, it said. Uh, and when did you realise? Uh, well, roughly, uh, give or take, uh, uh, when the proverbial hit the fan. We mentioned last week how U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, just couldn't understand how his popularity was declining, or more correctly, his unpopularity was soaring, while the chief medical officer's popularity was increasing, showing how Donald is anchored in reality. But then, understand, comprehend, Donald, not words we'd normally associate together. So this week, as his popularity continued to, or well, his unpopularity continued to, he found the perfect solution to all that. What do you do when it looks like you'll lose an election? Simple, call off the election. But in fairness, not because he could lose, but because, uh, well, tell us, Donald, because if I lose, it'll be rigged. Fake election. Fake election. Biggest fake election ever. Ever. See, told you he was rooted in reality. Uh, but last time, Hillary got more votes than you. Lots more votes than you. Yet, you won. So, that was rigged, presumably? Greatest one ever, ever. Wicked Hillary rigged it, but greatest ever, ever won. In the What a Surprise Department, we have unearthed one example, this is true, of Donald telling the truth. No, true, true. 
Now, we know Donald has given good U.S. of tech companies like Macro Profits Not Soft until September to buy out the U.S. of arm of TikTok, or he'll pack TikTok back to evil China where it belongs. The clock is TikToking, because apparently TikTok's role with young people dancing and carrying on is subversive. Well, we're nothing less from evil China, would we? And Donald has demanded that a substantial portion of the predicted $70 billion sale price should go to him, well, to the government, which he sees as the same thing, and asked to defend why the government should get anything, Donald said with his famous modesty, nobody else would be thinking about it but me, but that's the way I think. Exactly. Nobody else would be thinking about it. The truth make a killing. Death this week of Ireland's John Hume, whose opposition to violence from both his own Catholic side and the Protestant side played a key role in bringing the parties together for which he shared the 98 Nobel Peace Prize. And among the tributes, his contribution to peace in Northern Ireland was extraordinary from former Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Big Supremo, Tiny Blyer. And your contribution to non-peace in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Palestine, well, the Middle East generally. We acted on reliable intelligence from no less intelligent and reliable, reliable intelligence than our very, very, very good friend, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, uh, which was 100% unreliable from no less unintelligent and unreliable, unreliable unintelligence than your very, very good friend, the U.S. of. Let me assure you that George W. Bash, the workers, and the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo in those dark ages in your country, and I, had no idea, no idea the total reliable intelligence and irrefutable proof was all lies. No idea. Ah, yes, no idea seems to sum you all up, but why use the word lies? Uh, I meant mistaken. Mistaken as just a money-grabbing resource behemoth, poor Rio Tato the planet forced to face a Senate inquiry into the building up 46,000 years of indigenous history provided the perfect explanation. We originally considered mining options that would have preserved the area, Supremo John Sebastian jokes on you submitted, but chose instead to target high-grade iron ore. There. What other explanation do we need? High-grade iron ore. What choice did they have? And John Sebastian stressed the company had unreservedly apologised. Genuine tears, it seems, although we assume there are crocodiles in that area. But the main thrust of Rio Tato the Planet's submission was that there not be a knee-jerk reaction to the Ducan Cave's destruction like laws preventing them doing it again. Knee-jerk changes to the law could deter investment, John Sebastian pointed out. See? Genuine remorse. Unreserved apology. Finally, two of our group of eight sandstone fine institutions, the unis of Melbourne and NSW, have been repaying millions in yet more examples of caring employers 
inadvertently underpaying workers. But I thought the New South Wales case might have been deliberate part of the curriculum because it seems the underpaid workers were in the business school. What better way to teach students how to run a business? Inspired pedagogy. Good morning. We are coming to the end of the show and since you are at the whim of me, Annie, we are going to have a chat with Don Sutherland about something that has been bothering me. The evidence is in. Australia needs more manufacturing jobs and a sustainable energy future. There are good solid plans being put forward, but how do you get the greedy ones to care about our future rather than pretend to care? So this is what Don had to say. Is there any hope? Is there any hope that we can have a, a diversified uh, manufacturing sector and that Australians can actually be employed in the given world, political, economic world we live in? Uh, the short answer is yes. There is, there is hope that we can have a much better uh, society uh, that is based upon a much stronger manufacturing sector. And in fact, the two go together. Uh, but hope is not enough. Uh, what is also required and is far more important than hope is a mass level of determination determination to make it so. In other words, just hoping that it will happen is inadequate and a dead end because then it won't. The hope has to become something far more powerful and that is a collective social determination of the majority that says... This is the type of society we want to live in, in which the society itself can sustain itself by being able to make things that are crucial for its day-to-day -day reproduction. And this, I think, uh, 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 is one of the positive features of the Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union of an alternative plan which is based upon manufacturing. Um, before having a closer look at that, it's worth noting at the moment that I think that at, uh, at the present time, there are at least 10 alternative plans coming from organisations and individuals that credibly are a better version of the future than the present reality. And they include, I think, a credible plan that deserves further discussion coming from the Greens. Uh, also, uh, the, of course, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, which we should discuss in a minute. But also organisations like the uh, uh, United Workers Union as a single union, uh, alongside of the AMW, well, separately from the AMWU. Um, the Friends of the Earth in Victoria. And... Uh, You've mentioned the Australia Institute, and I'm not sure whether you mean the Centre for Future Work, which is a part of the Australia Institute, or whether you mean the Australia Institute in its own right. Actually, it now, was the Greens. It was the Greens. I listened to, uh, they auspiced a discussion by uh, the Greens and their, their plan. Yeah. Um, now, I think all of those separate plans, when you look at them to one degree or another, they overlap. And I should add, there are credible ideas about the content of a people's alternative plan coming from individuals. And um, 
I think you might have talked with him, but there's a bloke called Tony Evans who is writing a lot on his Facebook page from South Australia. And he's one individual, and there are others, who have got some good stuff. And there's, for example, a veteran financial review journalist, now I think retired or semi-retired, who is blogging regularly on Australian manufacturing. His name is Peter Roberts. Uh, so he, he also... So there are this, this plethora. At some point or another, uh, they've got to be synthesised. Because they're arguing, they're arguing similar things, aren't they? Well, they, well, they're not all, they're not all doing anything beyond producing a document. Actually, they're not doing much more beyond that. Some are, some are trying, but the documents, not not perfectly, but in thematically, do overlap. And there is so, for example, there is an emphasis upon, obviously what could be put crudely as the greening of the, the economy, right, to deal with climate change and, to some extent, as in the Friends of the Earth version, extending to other uh, despoliation and, therefore, remediation of nature. So, uh, th but there is, no, th th there is no sign yet of any of these individual organisations wanting to try and get a synthesis the second thing that is missing is that there is no movement of the people to support these plans. No, that's being right. Being organised. And that's one of the things... No, no, there isn't. And one of the things that's interesting to me is as COVID uh, sinks in, the actual elements of COVID sinks in, I was wondering if people might be activated towards these kinds of ideas because... Uh, uh, pushing, uh, forcing the federal government in these directions because the federal government is completely silent uh, if, on these areas. They want to have a war with China and they want to keep the fossil fuels going. Well, the government is not silent. I, I disagree with you there. The, the government is actually extremely active. Its approach to manufacturing is locked up in this COVID commission, which is, as you know, dominated by executives from energy corporations. So the government's approach to manufacturing, which must be defeated, is that the purpose of their, their approach to the revitalization of manufacturing has two critical features. Firstly, it's very restricted. And secondly, it's focused on that manufacturing that will enable new uh, gas exploitation of nature uh, based on uh, uh, not just LNG, but also out of um, uh, fracturing, I'm forgetting the part of fracking, out of fr corporate fracking of farmland, associated communities and so on, of, of nature, yes. And destroying, destroying the fabric of Australian society. Yes, exactly. And the interaction of human society with nature. So the government does is very active and does have a plan and it's very dangerous. Just about all of the alternative plans, most of which we listed, not all, um, are opposed to that in some way or another, with some degree of strength some of them very modestly, some of them more effectively in their content. 
I think there is a really, I think the AMWU plan, which is focused on manufacturing, uh, there's two general things to be said. I think this is the best alternative plan for manufacturing that the AMWU has come up with for about, probably about 13 years. And I say that in the context that the AMWU has been writing material and producing stuff for its members and the broader society since 1978, uh, starting with what was then called Australia Uprooted. So it's not as though they are... It, the AMWU is the most credible authority on the destruction of Australian manufacturing, which was quite deliberate, especially on the part of Liberal National Party governments, starting with the Fraser government, but which has been deliberately done by uh, LNP governments since, and only modestly reversed by Labor governments, and very weakly. So this is what in the current in the current is that because uh, is that because uh, of the um, political connection to free trade uh, ideology is that why this has happened? Um, in part, yes. Well, it, it, the short answer is yes, but it goes a little bit deeper than that, and that is that as, with the development of transnational corporations since the mid seventies. And their now dominance in the society, uh, their rate of profit is best in manufacturing, is best developed in low wage havens, policed if necessary at the point of a military or a paramilitary gun. And therefore, the rate of profit in Australia is not as strong in manufacturing for them, and they don't want it like that because there is a tradition of struggling although it's a declining tradition, unfortunately, struggling over effectively over wages on a class basis in Australia. So manufacturing's okay in Australia if they can get the wages down, right down, way below the current rates, the current minimum rates. I think one of the things the AMWU says in its report, which is refreshing, and I haven't seen it expressed quite like this, and I'd like to read it out, this is about why manufacturing matters. Um, the 2007 report had a similar go at this, actually. Uh, but this is, this is, I think, a really good way of putting it. Quote, Manufacturing is the transformation of tangible materials harvested from the natural environment into more complex and useful products. It is impossible to imagine an economy without manufacturing Human beings will always have material needs and wants that can only be met through the production and transformation of material goods. Claims that we are evolving into a post-industrial or information economy in which manufacturing doesn't matter are wrong. Then it goes on, in short, there is no job in society that can be performed without the use of manufacturing goods. Therefore, Manufacturing is not just another sector of the economy. It is a core component of the economy. And then the report then goes on and highlights that Australia's dependence upon manufacturing in, is the worst 
in all of the developed, 32 developed countries that make up the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. Yeah, that was the uh, headline that was taken out of the report. Australia is yeah. the lowest in the OECD countries for manufacturing self-sufficiency. Yes. That's yeah. how it was put. So the, the AMWU report, now there are two versions for your listeners if they're interested, which can be picked up from the AMWU webpage. There's the short report, which the summary, which is about 20-odd pages, and then there is an 80-page, which has all of the statistical data and uh, links and references to that and so on. So the AMW report is very strong, uh, much better. Uh, my criticism of, criticism of it applies to all of the other reports that I've been able to read. They have no conception outlined at least in the summary, there may be more in the 80-page report, which I confess to your listeners that I have not read yet. They have no conception at all about how the struggle for what is proposed in the report can be waged by people, their, mem their own members and their potential members. And I'd like to come back to that after a quick comment about the ACTU report on, the on job creation, and man which includes manufacturing. So if you go to the ACTU one, it, its section on manufacturing is good and dovetails significantly with the more detail that exists in the AMWU report. I think the outstanding feature, there are two positive features, one of which is outstanding from the ACTU position, and that is its primary emphasis on childcare. Yes. Yeah. Now, this is important for manufacturing workers, not just for workers who are teachers or doctors or whatever, nurses and so on. This is also important because there's an increasing number of women in low-paid jobs in manufacturing. Uh, when we're talking about childcare, we are talking about, in any modern economy, an essential element of the society's ability to reproduce itself. You know, if, we, if, if women... Very normal, very ordinary. It's quite a straightforward concept, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the, the LNP and employer version of how that should occur is that the workers should pay for that, right. even though they are the beneficiaries in total profit and profitability. And that <laughs> and we're so, not a society. This is, a, this yeah. is the absolute uh, point at which people should actually reflect on this nonsense about the economy being more important than uh, health and uh, the business that uh, Thatcher was on about, there is no society. Mm. I, I constantly think to myself, uh, well, why have we got roads? Why have we got all this stuff that you fuckers are using um, if we don't have a society? And if there isn't a general good uh, principle... Why do we have a power system? Why do we have, why do we have anything? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're full of shit. Yeah. But the thing so, about... So um, to go back to the ACTU, so that's one of... It's, I think that's an outstanding feature of the ACTU uh, alternative plan. The second one is that at the end, and they totally mess it up at the end, but they, the fact that they've raised it is really important is about how to transition the economy, how to implement an alternative plan democratically, 
in other words, how do you involve? Uh, they call them stakeholders. Now, a stake, the stakeholder language uh, means that employers and workers have equal importance in forcing the transition along. That is a nonsense. It's a very European, it's an adaptation of an, the European social dialogue nonsense, which is a dead end in the end, because there's as many problems that we have here in Australia that are very much to the fore in most European countries also. So, uh, but at least the ACTU are on to that. And it's a question of how that can be developed. And that's where I'd like to sort of stitch together, if you like, uh, this whole problem of mobilising a movement that can pursue alternative plans along the lines of what's being pr proposed. Uh, I think, and the way it happens is like this, and I've written a little bit about it in my blog a few, you know, a few months ago, uh, and it's based on the idea of how to make working class people in their communities the dominant protagonists in driving change, not just in manufacturing, but in other aspects, in, not just in job creation in general. And it works like this. Let's take, for example, the economic unit to be a local government. The local government is made up of a pile of postcodes. So a smart union or a group of unions getting together brings all of its members in those postcodes into a meeting, virtual or real, and says your task over the next month is to search through your local government geographic area and identify all of the community projects, jobs that are necessary in manufacturing, first priority, what could, what needs to be made for your community and what could be made. And then add on to that the services that are associated that would, that would make that process more uh, effective. So that's where you come to childcare and so on. That's the task they get. So the workers are the protagonists in defining what's actually going on in their community in terms of job creation and the possibility for thousands more jobs. That's a great idea. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, my, what I am certain of is that they will find dozens in every local government. So there is a gap. There is a gap between the jobs that would make a difference in the daily reproduction of the society and what the present society is capable of delivering. So the workers define that gap. The next stage in the process may require some experts, right? And that's where the economic technocrats, whether they're left wing, as in the writers of the reports I've described, we've been discussing, or it may not, it may involve others who actually live in those communities. They then say, well, let's put together a plan for job creation in our community and we frame that plan as a set of demands to be put on local government, state government and federal government and on the five biggest employers that currently operate in those industry sectors. So they work out their plan 
They don't get rush off and have discussions with government and the powers that be until they've got their plan together. That's their alternative plan. The next step is that they take that to bigger numbers of people who live in the local government, bigger numbers of people, to get their endorsement and participation, putting flesh on the plan, more content into the plan. And only at that point, when they've got a critical mass of people in that area, all of this is driven along by the union and other people, or the unions, it might be a group of unions who do it. And all of that takes them to a point at some stage, they, go, they then convene a meeting of, they convene it. It's not a tripartite process, except in the sense that there are three or four different parties coming together. They convene the meeting and they say, this is the plan we want. This is what it requires and in terms of more investment from the five biggest employers. This is what it requires in terms of government subsidies at both uh, national, state and federal level. And if they get fobbed off, they consider what action they're going to take next. No dilly-dallying around. Right? They build it from below so that it becomes a negotiated exercise, not a polite tripartite discussion. That's interesting you should bring this up because there was a report that came on, it was Landline, I believe, ABC Landline I was watching, um, and it was from Malakuta. And that actually is where uh, Bruce Pascoe and his family live. And it was uh, his uh, partner who instigated, was part one of the uh, uh, um, movers and shakers, but it was a group of people down there who immediately after the fires did exactly what you just said. That's exactly well, what they did. And I bet you around the country, there are other people who are talking about or mulling over or even doing... They're not waiting. I, I, I read an article about that. And in part, I went, click. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the synapses are coming together, you know, uh, on my part. And so uh, it's not as though this is an impractical idea. No, it works. But what is... Now, then, it gets really interesting from a union point of view, right? The union is the most important organisation left in Australia that can provide the members and the material base to be able to start this process. But also, whenever I have sat down in union education courses with workers from a range of companies from within a region, they all talk about the downward pressure on wages because they can't get the employers in the same room for a common rate. That can be a part of the process, that the demand for jobs is at, the, at least the minimum award rates. The new jobs will be at the minimum award rates, not at some statutory uh, unemployed, uh, sorry, statutory basic income level, but award rates. That all gets integrated into the plan. So you're bringing together, driven by workers through their unions and other working class organisations, a synthesis of incomes improvement with job creation. You see, what I'm interested in is um, how do unions uh, make workers the primary protagonist, the dominating force, in pursuing the alternative plans. 
And what I've come up with is just a proposal about how that might occur. And there, you know, the the starting point though is for the union leadership at the base and at the top of the union to use that sort of language uh, to actually say this is the role for unions to make workers the protagonist instead of the receivers of the perceive of the of the wisdom about the future of manufacturing from think tanks and economic experts they are actually the protagonists that translate whatever useful information they get from experts into practical momentum that creates jobs on decent incomes and also fixes the climate change problem. We finish on this. This is the best way to deal with three of the four crises we are in now. We have what is called an economic crisis, which is now happening at a far faster rate than a was uh, seven months ago because of the second crisis, which is a health crisis associated with the pandemic. And by the way, the causes overlap with each other anyway. Um, The third crisis is about democracy. And that is the crisis of confidence in the parliamentary form of democracy as we currently know it. And then they're the three, that's the way of, what I'm laying out is a way that could be improved and sure in all sorts of ways of being able to deal with those three. The fourth one is a bit different and but also overlaps when you want to talk about the funding for job creation. And that is to do with uh, the threat of war. Uh, we do have uh, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists is deeply concerned that we're much closer to nuclear warfare than we were six months ago. And that is a crisis that is not really slapping us around the face at the moment, but it is one nevertheless. Especially as uh, most disturbing since it's the 75th anniversary of the unnecessary dropping of those two bombs. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, I think it's we've got a really positive development with these alternative plans. They do need to be synthesised, and there does need to be a uh, a process, if you like, of making workers their protagonists instead of the technocratic economists and so on who are experts at it.
I could get a tip jar and gas up the car. Try to make a little change down at the bar, or I could get a straight job. I done it before. Never minded working hard. It's who I'm working for. 'Cause everything is free now. That's what they say. Everything I ever done, gonna give it away. Someone hit the big score and figured it out. They were gonna do it anyway, even if it doesn't pay. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.